Many of you know that I, I enjoy movies. I would go to movies all the time if I could. I may or may not have wasted many days of my life watching movies at home. Um, but I like movies. But there was, a, there was a time in 2001 where I was introduced to a piece of cinematic perfection. Produced by and directed by Peter Jackson known as The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Fantastic movie. Fantastic movie. Admittedly, I hadn't read the entirety of the trilogy, but I still went to see the movie. And when I went to see the movie, I went with several friends. This was opening night. Whenever it came out in 2001, me and several of my buddies over in Columbus, Mississippi, one of those guys, his name was Van Yates. Van, if you're listening online, sorry, brother. It just had to be done today. So one of my buddies was Van Yates. We go to this movie, we're all pumped up about this. We all know that it's a trilogy. We all know that this is the first in the series of three movies. We, we knew that that's how this was going to be. So we're watching the movie, three hours goes by, we're enthralled, we are transfixed. It is a wonderful experience and we are super, super pumped and can't wait for the next one to come out. Well, we're leaving the theater just super happy. I think it was one of those times at the end of the movie where everyone starts applauding. You know, I haven't been in many movies where that actually happened. I was recently in the movie Creed 2 where people actually applauded during certain parts of it. So there were, so it was a kind of a cool thing. We're leaving and then Van just has this look of displeasure on his face. He said, what's wrong with you? Did you not like the movie? He said, man, that is a horrible way to end a movie. So what are you talking about? Frodo and Samwise just kind of go off in a boat? That's it? That's all that got? That, that's all that happens? Well, Van Yates didn't know that it was, in fact, a trilogy. He thought that this was one movie, one and done, that's all that's going to happen. And so naturally, the movie had a bad ending for him because it just, there was no resolve. There was no resolve. And so he was all put out. So he, Van, <laughs> there's two more movies coming. He's like, you're kidding. And I wish I would have known that because he, he was mad. I mean, he left wanting his money back. He's like, listen, you, you had the wrong experience because you're expecting this to be it. You know, so it, it left him with this huge cliffhanger, and he thought there was just no resolve to the movie. So if we back up to where we left off in Ruth chapter 3, we're left with no resolve. We're left with a cliffhanger. You know that Naomi concocts this plan to send Ruth into the room, or into the room that Boaz, the threshing floor, where Boaz was laying that night, guarding the grain most likely. Boaz is there, and it says at midnight, Ruth was to go in there. Ruth is to lay beside his feet. She's to uncover his feet. And then when he wakes up, she's going to present herself as a potential bride to him. Now, before she goes, Naomi, or at, well, she goes, before she goes, Naomi just says, look, it's really up to him. You're going to present yourself, and you just have to go with the flow. Whatever Boaz says, you just go with it. You're kind of at his mercy. So we see the story unfold. She goes there. She lays at his feet. She uncovers his feet. And then he, is, he, he wakes up sometime during the night. And they have this dialogue. And she presents herself to him as a potential bride. And he says, there's another kinsman. There's another redeemer that's closer to you than I am. And Ruth, or Boaz, being an honorable and a respectable man says, I have to go to him. It's just right. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to see if he'll have you. If he'll have you, if he'll redeem you, then fine. If he won't, I'll do it. So he 
piles her up with grain. I think it said six measures, somewhere around 90, 95 pounds of grain. Just lavishing care for her. Sends her on her way at morning time, but not so late in the morning that people would see her so as to probably protect her reputation and to protect his reputation. So she sends him away, or he sends her away. She goes back to Naomi. Naomi is told the full story, and this is where we're left. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So there's a cliff. So we're just waiting. Just waiting to see what happens. So that's where we pick up today. So I'm going to read through this, make a couple of points for you, and then kind of talk through why this story is relevant for us today. Why does it not just pertain to a several thousand year old audience? How do we take something so archaic, so historical, and say, this has immediate application for you? Yeah, it's not a time where a marriage where marriages were arranged. It's not a time where women were waiting and hoping for a man so that they could have life, so that they could have land, so that they could have hope. It's not that time. We're in a different time. I get that. But it still has relevance and pertinence for us today. So let's read along together. Chapter 4 begins by saying, Now Boaz had come up to the gate, and he sat down there. So it doesn't take long for us to have to stop and just say why this matters in the story. Stops at the gate. The gate is referenced a lot of times throughout the Old Testament, especially. There's things that happen at the city gate with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and his cousin Lot, or his relative Lot. All these things happen. There's important things that happen at the city gate. If you look at Proverbs 31, it's interesting that the Proverbs 31 woman is said to laud her husband to promote her husband at the city gate. Why at the city gate? This was, this was control center. This was the central place to be for all the things that were happening. This is where legal transactions took place. This is where most of your traffic happened. People coming in, in the story of Ruth, to the threshing floor to buy grain. They would have to go through the city gate. So what does Boaz do? He goes to the city gate. He doesn't know if he's going to see this kinsman. I'm sure he had a decent idea. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us if he had a relationship with him, if he met him every day and had coffee. It doesn't say any of those things. But Boaz is confident that he's going to see this guy. So he goes to the city gate and he sits there and he waits. And lo and behold, he runs into this guy. It says, and behold, continuing in verse 1, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. I like to just assume that God had providentially moved this guy through their path. I, again, don't think it was happenstance. I don't want to camp out on that super long. We did that when we talked about Ruth just happening to end up in Boaz's field. So this guy just comes by. I think the Lord is providentially moving things into place as He always does. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So he goes to this guy, says, I want you to sit down. He goes to these elders. He says, I want you to sit down. And this is significant because in order for a legal transaction to take place, you had to have witnesses as well as the transactioner and the transaction need. I do make up words sometimes. So, uh, so this is happening, right? You have the elders there. Then he said to the Redeemer, in the front of the elders that are there to form a quorum, 
to make everything legitimate. How would you like for that to be the way that we just did stuff? Well, let's go to the city gate. I don't know where that would be. Would that be over there by City Hall? <laughs> you know, let's all just meet there. Let's just grab 10 elderly folks. Or let's grab 10 people of good, of good repute, of good rapport, of respect, worthy, noteworthy men. Let's get them together and let's just have them sit there and we're going to make this legal transaction and y'all have to be witnesses. This is the way it was done. So, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, he's, I don't think it's by happenstance that he says she's from Moab. Because any Jew, any person from Bethlehem would understand who a Moabite woman is. And what they had done in leading the men of Israel to idolatry and to uh, immorality. So he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he's saying, there's two of us, man. That's it. The only hope this woman has rests between me and you. So here's the deal. You get the land. You get this parcel. This is according to Leviticus 25, the Kinsman Redeemer Code. You can do this. It's your choice. But he, he doesn't yet add the fact that he gets Ruth, the Moabitess. He doesn't add that yet. I find that interesting. He says, but if you will, if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, if you just stop there, you think this story's just taking a turn for the worst. Because you're sitting here rooting for Boaz, hoping, okay, Boaz from the tribe of Judah. You're thinking, man, this story's unfolding, and it is just, it, 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 is, it is panning out to be such a beautiful picture of what's to come. The seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, all of the covenants of Abraham, covenants of God, uh, the, all of, all of the, the, the promises wrapped up in God's covenant with Abraham coming to fruition in Jesus. You're starting to see this thing happen. And all of a sudden this guy says, sure, I'll redeem it. And then our hearts kind of sink for a moment, especially if you don't know the story. I don't know what Boaz is thinking. Ruth and Naomi don't know about this right now. They're just wondering who's going to redeem them, if anyone at all. So the man's answer to redeem was not surprising. Here's why it wasn't surprising. He hasn't told her yet about Ruth. He hasn't told the man yet that he's going to not only get this land, but he's going to have to marry this woman so that her name can continue, so that the, the name of her husband can continue, so that the house of Israel can continue to be built up. It was a small investment with a great return. And here's why. If this guy did that, not knowing about Ruth, if it was just the land, if it was just Naomi and all those things, Naomi was elderly and she was not likely to have any offspring at this time in her life. You have to understand, if she had a child, the child then has the inheritance. All that land, everything goes to them automatically by law. So not only does this guy have to take Ruth, the child that is born, he has to take care of that child, feed the child, which costs money. But then at the end of all things, he has to give all this inheritance over to him. Not just what came from Ruth, not just what came from Naomi because of their husbands, but because that was now his son. And he, his son then, by right, has a portion of his inheritance, this unnamed redeemer. He doesn't know this yet, so he's saying, sure. 
This is a this is a win-win situation for me. Little investment, great return. That's a that's a great way to operate. He could have performed a civic duty and enhanced his civic reputation. This is what Robert Hubbard Jr. says. The land transaction would potentially turn into years of productive and lucrative harvests for this guy. So it was a good situation. And he would be a fool to turn it down. Because at first glance, it seems like a great, great setup. Well, then Boaz said something different. He adds to the situation. He says, well, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth, verse 5. You acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, or I cannot redeem it. Again, he's saying, "Uh uh-uh, nope, not going to do that. Can't do that for the reasons I just told you. Because of what it's going to cost him. I mean, this is what he says. He says, I cannot do that. I cannot redeem it for myself. And the connotation there in the Hebrew is literally, I cannot afford to do that. Meaning, I'm not going to give up even more of the inheritance that goes to my boys. I'm not going to do that. I can't afford to feed this kid for something that's going to give me zero, zero return. I just can't do that. So then we're back in the game. We're reading the story. We're back in it. Okay, okay. A little bit of a road bump there. But now things are back on track. Okay, so this unnamed guy comes into the picture. And as soon as he's in the picture, he's out of the picture. And what did Boaz say? He said, listen, if you'll redeem a redeemer, if not, let me know. I'll redeem. There's only two of us that can do this job by law. So here it is. Boaz says, I'll do it. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot, I cannot do it. Verse 7 says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm transaction, the one drew off his sandal to give it to the other. Again, I know this sounds weird. We don't do it that way, this way any, anymore. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And this is what I've discovered through a little bit of research, that there is a significance to the taking off of the sandal. It wasn't just this arbitrary, okay, let's think of how we're going to do this. Let's think of how we're going to make this transaction happen. Oh, I got it. Let's just remove our sandal. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you look back to the significance there are when you consider feet in the Old Testament. I know it sounds strange, but let me share with you Joshua 10.24. Listen to this. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chief of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. This symbolized power and domination and possession. In Exodus, you know that Moses approaches this burning bush and the Lord speaks through this bush and says, remove your sandals from the place that you are standing is holy ground. The ground was holy. Why? Because God Almighty has power. He possesses all. He has absolute dominion. This is why the place became holy ground, because of the presence of the Lord. And so the attention is to the removing of the sin. And so... And there's other places in the text that it says these things, but this is what scholars kind of come to an agreement on as far as what the removing of the sandal actually actually represents. So he drew off his sandal to kind of seal the deal in front of the elders, 
so that this legal transaction can be finalized and legitimate. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land, uh, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to, uh, and, 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 and to Malon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may be cut off from among his brothers or may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So the transaction is a done deal. Boaz is going to have Ruth as a wife. He's going to have Naomi's land. He's going to have all these things. They're going to have a child, and then all the inheritance will go to the child. Boaz, who is a single man, Boaz, who is a wealthy man, a respectable man, has no problem doing these things. It's not that there was this great love attraction that took place. I told you last week this is a love story, but I don't believe it's a love story between Ruth and Boaz. I think this was more practical for them and a part of the bigger picture, a part of the bigger image and part of the grand narrative that God is starting to pull back the curtain on so that we can see the coming Messiah. But I think this was a love story between what we see now, Jesus as the church, between God and His covenant people. God and His covenant itself. So Ruth and Boaz marry. And everything at this point is looking beyond, everything at this point uh, is looking beyond what is directly in front of them. So you start hearing of this son. Words like, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. By the way, there's reason to believe that Ruth was barren up until this point. She was married to Malon for 10 years. She was married to him for 10 years. This is a time where to be married was to have children. Because that was your inheritance. If a woman like Sarah, who was married to Abraham, couldn't have a child, it was thought to be a bad thing. Maybe the Lord's favor is not on you because you can't bear children. Because that was a part of what the woman was to do, was to bear children so that the line could be continued, so that the house of Israel, in that sense, could be built up. And she was not able to have a child for 10 years, is the assumption. It says they were married for 10 years, they were over there for 10 years, and she was, uh, had not had a child. But now she is conceived, now she has a child. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. This is the son. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Nothing too complex here. He's just saying this son will be special. This son will bring you joy because you will be a grandmother and you will be able to take care of this child. Because everything at this point becomes about the son. And it becomes about the son because eventually it's about Jesus. Because this son coming into frame is the next step as far as surety is concerned to bring about the seed of the woman, the child of promise. So this is a huge deal. So everything looks forward. You know how it is. I mean, let's be honest. When I got married to Sarah 14 years ago, my parents were excited that I got married, but I guarantee you when they're watching me and my wife say I do, what they're thinking is finally, 
We're on the road to grandbabies. It wasn't so much about, oh, you're married. It's like, this is a means to an end. I'm glad this day is happening. So y'all get married, have babies so we can have grandchildren. That's what it becomes about. If you have a young child, soon you become that child's mother. You don't have a name anymore. You're just that child's mother or you're just that child's father because it becomes about the child. And this is what happened here, but in a, in a, in a grander sense because it became about the child, which essentially became about the Messiah. It says, he shall be the restorer of life and the nurser of your old age. She will not face famine like she has again. She will not have to cling to every moment for food because of what the inheritance promised to that family through this child, Obed. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. This was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And here's the genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered uh, Amadadab. And Amenadab fathered Nation. And Nation fathered Salmon. And Salmon, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So the house of Israel is being built up because of the promise to Abraham that he will make him many nations. This is all following that line. It's God coming true to his promises. So here's my transitional statement for you. I love reading narrative because it's highly deductive. As you read it, you get an image of the story. And then when you have the story in frame, you can start making these applications. You can say, okay, now that I see the full picture, it's called context. I can then start making sense of all these things. This chapter has completed a portion of God's tapestry, His grand narrative, and we can begin to appreciate all that God has revealed to us because this story is not only pertinent to an audience several thousand years old or to an audience from several thousand years ago, but it matters for us. So what are the lessons that we take away from this story? Not just this section of the story, but the story as a whole. Now that we have the full frame. And this is... How you understand narrative. You read narrative, you get the full picture, and then you start making application. Because God has revealed His character through the events that subsequently flow from one event to the next through narrative. So here's lesson one that I've learned and I want to present to you. Lesson one is this. The way of righteousness and glory is often the hardest path that we'll ever have to take. The way of righteousness and the way of glory is often the hardest path that we'll ever have to take. I think John Bunyan captured this sentiment when he, when he wrote the book A Pilgrim's Progress in 1678. I want to read to you a, a synopsis of what this book is about because it really captures, and it is next to the Bible, the best seller in the world. So part one is presented as the author's dream of the trials and the adventures of Christian who is a figure of every man as he travels from his home to the city of destruction to the celestial city. Christian seeks to rid himself of, t of terrible burden. The weight of his sins that he feels after reading a book, the Bible, evangelist points him towards a wicked gate and he heads off, leaving his family behind. He falls into the slough of the spawn, dragged down by his burden, but he is saved by a man named Help. Christian next meets Mr. Worldly Wiseman who pursues him to disregard evangelists' advice and instead to go to the village of morality and seek out Mr. Legality or his son, Civility. 
Bunyan's not very subtle, by the way. However, Christian's burden becomes heavier and he stops. Evangelists reappears or evangelist reappears and sets him back on the path to the wicket gate. The gatekeeper, goodwill, lets him through a direct, uh, lets him through, um, sorry, lets him through and directs him to the house of the interpreter where he receives instructions on Christian's grace, on Christian grace. As Christian continues his journey, he comes upon a cross and a sepulcher. And at that point, his burden falls from his shoulders. Three shining ones appear and give him a sealed scroll, and he must present when he, that he must present when he reaches the celestial gate. Anybody guess what the celestial gate is? A gate to the celestial city. Christian continues on his way, and when he reaches the hill difficulty, he chooses the straight and narrow path. Partway up, he feels asleep and in an arbor allowing the scroll to fall from his hands. When he wakes, he proceeds to the top of the hill only to find that he must return to the arbor to find his lost scroll. He later alive, uh, arrives at the palace, beautiful, where he meets the damsel discretion, prudence, piety, and charity. They give Christian armor, and he learns that a former neighbor, faithful, is traveling ahead of him. Christian next traverses the valley of humiliation where he does not battle, where he does battle with the monster called Apollyon. He then passes through the terrifying valley of the shadow of death. Shortly afterward, he catches up with Faithful. The two enter the town of Vanity, home of the ancient Vanity Fair, which is set up to ensnare pilgrims en route to the celestial city. There, their strange clothes and lack of interest in the fair's merchandise cause a commotion, and they are arrested. Arraigned before Lord Hategood, Faithful is condemned to death and executed. And he is immediately taken into the celestial city. Christian is returned to prison, but he later escapes. Last paragraph, Christian leaves vanity, accompanied by Hopeful, who was inspired by Faithful. Christian and Hopeful cross the plain of ease and resist the temptation of silver mine. The path later becomes more difficult, and at Christian's encouragement, the two travelers take an easy route through Bypath Meadow. However, when they become lost and are caught in a storm, Christian realizes that he has led them astray. Trying to turn back, they stumble into the ground of Doubting Castle where they are caught in prison and beaten by the giant despair. At last, Christian remembers that he has a key called Promise, which he and Hopeful use to unlock the doors to escape. They reach the delectable mountains just outside of the celestial city, but make the mistake of following Flatterer and must be rescued by Shining One. Before they can enter the celestial city, they must cross a river as a test of faith. And then, after presenting their scrolls, Christian and Hopeful are admitted into the city. It's interesting to me. This really encapsulates what it is to live as a Christian. It's always facing hurdle after hurdle. And here's what's crazy to me. We are children of God. God is the Lord of the universe. Absolute power, absolute dominion, absolute sovereignty over all things. He speaks and things respond because even the inanimate objects recognize His power and sovereignty. And yet, we go through life and we face flaming arrow after flaming arrow. I mean, I've been on the school grounds before when I've told somebody, you mess with me, I'm telling my daddy on you. My dad probably wouldn't have done much of anything, but I'm telling my dad on you, my dad's going to come in and he's going he's to handle business. You mess with me, you bully me, my dad's going to come in here. There was recently a dad that was arrested in the upstate for slapping a kid that was picking on his kid. 
I don't recommend that dads go that route, but I get it. I get the feeling of if your kid's being picked on, you want to run in like a hero and say, I'm going to stop this trash. But God doesn't always do that for us. Right? I mean, He can do anything, and He loves us more than anything, and yet He allows us to enter into a slew of the spawn. He allows us to receive these flaming arrows, and all for His glory. Also that we press in, and we learn to lean in and trust Him more. And we learn what it is to have joy in the midst of suffering. If we didn't suffer, you don't know that. One pastor said, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. The road to glory is filled with obstacles. Trying to live in a whole, trying to live whole in a broken world or a broken system is like trying to fit a square peg through a round hole. There's going to be resistance. It's just the way it is. This world is broken. And we try to live contrary to the way the world is, to the state of the world. There's going to be friction. There's going to be resistance. That's the way that it is. And so I think it's right to embrace the fact that we have to learn the lesson that the way of righteousness and glory is often the hardest path of them all. And it comes with great, great resistance. Lesson two, the sovereignty of God provides the surety of His accomplished will. And this is a good thing. The sovereignty of God that God controls and He rules all things provides for us the hope and the surety that all that He wills will come to pass. He will be successful in all that He does. God never leaves anything to chance. This is important for you to understand. He doesn't leave anything to chance. God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God's character is on the line here. When God's character is on the line, do we think that He would leave it up to mankind to determine whether or not God could be trustworthy, to, to, to see whether or not, or to prove whether or not God's character is actually what the Bible says it is? No way. I think my son has offered to babysit Calvin maybe three, four years ago. No, not three, four years ago yet. Maybe two years ago. I'll babysit him. I'm like, you're crazy. Do you know how to do the Heimlich on a, on a, on a child? No. What you get? No, I'm, that, that's absurd to me. I appreciate the gesture that you want to help. I'm like, there are things that I will trust you with, and there are things that I will not entrust to you. Because a part of my job is to work to ensure that certain things happen, case one being your safety. This aspect of God's character is proven over and over again in the Scripture. It's proven in the doctrines of grace. It's proven in our salvation. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Listen to this context. This context is in the context of salvation. Jesus has said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst again. He's saying, if they come, they will be saved. And then he says, all that the Father has given will come. He's not talking about all who have been saved. He says all that the Father before the foundations of the world has put His divine election upon. He says all of them will come. Every single one of them. And that's success. Do we really think that God is begging people to come to Christ? and willing people to come to Christ, and yet they say no. Now I know there's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about that, but when the rubber meets the road and you get really soteriological, really Christological, really theological, and you take all these verses in the Bible, how nothing can thwart the will of God, the purposes of God, that God gets all that He desires, He does what He pleases, that nothing can frustrate the will of God. 
Do we think that he leaves it up to chance or he leaves it up to mankind at the end of the day? No. God's sovereignty, it provides the surety that whatever he sets out, whatever his will is, will be accomplished. Now, without going into it, there is a discussion to be had about what God's reveal will is versus what his secret will is. Because that's a way of interpreting all these things. God doesn't just see the end, but he plans the means. We would be foolish to think that in Ruth's story that God left the promise of the coming Messiah to be contingent on the unaided exclusivity of the human will. The sovereignty is both passive. God's sovereignty is both passive and active. He doesn't just see what's going to come to pass. He ordains what's going to come to pass. We like to go to Verses like Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Those whom God foreknew. That foreknew doesn't mean God knew something was going to happen. It means that God set His affections upon beforehand. And the rest of that text provides the hermeneutic to interpret what He means by foreknew. Because if you just look at it as, oh, God just knew something. So therefore He knew it was going to happen, so He responds in this way. The Scripture falls apart if that's your interpretation. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. As a matter of fact, it becomes universalism. Lesson three. I'm going to wrap this up. Lesson three. There's always more to the image than what we see on the canvas. There's always more on the image than what we see on the canvas. I told you a couple of weeks ago that my son has discovered Bob Ross. I watched a painting yesterday. There's this painting called... The island in the wilderness. So I watched Bob Ross paint this thing. And when he starts, he starts by taking a blank canvas and he provides this background. Now this background was filled with a pinkish hue and some kind of baby blue color. And it looked really nice. You know, me not being a super artsy guy, or at least not knowing art, I would probably see that hanging somewhere and think, that's beautiful. It's some nice colors. It's kind of pastel-y. I'd hang it in here for Easter. It's nice. But that was just his background. That was just his background. At first, there's just an array of blues and pinks, but then he begins to tap the paintbrush, and, uh, and you start seeing mountains form in the background. I'm like, all he did was, was dab a little happy, happy paint here and started just flapping this thing. And all of a sudden, you see these mountains. I'm like, how does he get mountains? How does he do that? After he starts making these sharp-looking marks after that, you see mountains, these kind of Blue Ridge-type rolling mountains, and then he, then he starts to kind of like whip it like that. Like, what is he doing now? You know, and all of a sudden you see a forest. That's all he's done. Get a forest. So this forest, my mind is blown at this time. Okay, so I see this forest that starts to just emerge from all these crazy Easter colors. But then a few more strokes and dabs of the paintbrush and you see the reflection of the forest. Boom. You're messed up now. You know, he's like, what's he doing now? What's he doing now? And all of a sudden you're like, that's a lake. He just painted a lake with like two strokes of his paintbrush. How does he do that? It's a fantastic thing that's happening right before my eyes. And then he paints a fantastic, these are his words, a fantastic little bank for the water's edge. Now that he's established a base and a background, he works towards the foreground and brings everything into focus, slowly but surely. Pretty soon the image comes into full frame and you see bushes directly in front of you with texture. He said, we're going to take this little green, mix it with this green. I like to call it this green. I like to get my Give him paint names. He says, I just touch it here. Not too much. Just do one at a time is what he says. And all of a sudden you see these textured bushes that are right there and it's got layers. It's got dimension. All because he slapped a canvas with a brush with some paint on it. 
until finally the image is complete. And this image is called Island in the Wilderness. And we have a picture of it. But what's interesting about the image is that it started as a blank canvas. That's it. And then he provided some images for the background. And if you walk away and you don't see the mountains, you don't see the the forest here, you don't see the lake, you don't see these trees that are in the foreground, you think, maybe you think it looks good, maybe you think it's ugly, but we know that it's incomplete. But at that moment, all we can see is the image that's provided. And so Naomi and Ruth are in the same scenario. God has, has, has provided a part of a bigger image for them and for us as we're walking through the entire biblical narrative. And that's why I say there's always more to the image than we see on a canvas. And this was absolutely true for everyone in the Scripture, and it's true for you today. And it's important that you get that. It's important that when you walk through seasons of your life, up or down, that you're saying this is just, this is just a, a brush stroke of the bigger image. And if it's negative for you, then it's negative for you. Because that's something that we all have to swallow. Being loved by God doesn't mean we're coddled. It doesn't mean that God's plan for us is that no one would ever, ever cause us harm. That you would never, never face famine. That you would never struggle and have hardship. That's never a promise made to you. There are promises that His love is great and it endures forever. That you don't have reason to worry or to be anxious. There are all these promises that are there for you. But those promises don't promise you that you will live a cancer-free life. They don't promise you that your husband or spouse might die or might leave you or that you might endure some hardship in your marriage. There's, no, there's none of those promises because there's a faithful, good-natured, light-filled, absent-of-bad God that is carrying us and sustaining us through an absolutely broken world. And He's doing this because of His covenantal faithfulness. If we stop at just a base layer, we haven't seen the final image. That base layer might be beautiful or ugly. Either way, it's not the full image. Naomi and Ruth losing their husbands was not the full image of the picture. It was like a base layer that eventually landed them in a position where God would bring to fruition the next layers of His divine will. Your part in this grand narrative works the same as Ruth and Naomi's and Boaz's and so on and so forth. Your successes, your failures, your sins, your accomplishments, your career, your health, your infirmities, your strengths, weaknesses, your life, and even your death. The good and the bad are individual threads that come together as a part of God's grand tapestry. One scholar says that God operates using a new math. A new math. Something that we haven't seen. Something we're not used to. Like when Common Core hit the scene, the devil that it is. But playing on God's side means that you play as the team. I remember playing baseball, and I got one last point, and we'll finish it up. I remember playing baseball, and my coach would oftentimes, because I batted closer to the beginning of the lineup, and he would ask me to turn around for a bunt. I was never a home run hitter, but I remember times where I thought, this is an easy pitcher. I'm about to crank one over the fence. Maybe we had a runner on second. Maybe we had a runner on third. Either way, he'd say, he'd give me the bunt. Like, bunt? I'm about to jack this ball. No. <laughs> you know, so I square around the bunt. Most likely, I'm going to get out. But I'm doing so to advance the runner. There's strategy. I know that doesn't happen in football, but in baseball, there's strategy. And we're moving people around. And so... 
I bunted, but it was what? For the bigger picture. It was for the team. And this is how God operates. You know, I used a sports analogy. I didn't use a building analogy. There we go. God is moving things into place. And sometimes there are sacrifices. And if you say, whoa, 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 that's, that's kind of hard that God would sacrifice one of us. Did he not do it with his son? The scripture not clear that if he sacrificed his son, if he brought his son to the cross according to what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur, would he not sacrifice you for the greater good? Dare I say it, would he not allow something to happen to your children? Or to your beloved ones? Final thing is this. Sometimes losing everything is the road that leads to perspective. Naomi lost everything, but then she gained so much in the son provided by Boaz and Ruth. Ultimately, ultimately she gains, the world gains Jesus. She went through great hardship so that she would be mobilized to Judah. There God would continue to providentially move pieces into place, not leaving anything to chance, to ensure that His promise would be fulfilled. So what do you do when you can't see the bigger picture? You rest in the goodness of God. You don't follow emotion. You follow truth. When you are and will be in a crucible, when you will be in a hard time, how do you respond when you can't see what's around you go with what you know to be true. You cling to what God has revealed to you about Himself through narrative or through straight doctrinal statements throughout the New Testament or the Old. And you say, God, you're good. There's no darkness in you. You're light. You have my best interests, my best intentions. You work and act out of your own perfections and for your glory. I belong to you. You're going to protect me. Whatever that means, I don't know. But I trust that everything that happens is according to your sovereign hand, according to your providential movement. And at the end of the day, it is a fortunate thing for me to be a part of what you're doing, piecing together this grand narrative. Because one day, the narrative will be complete. One day, and hopefully, the brushstroke that represents your life or the thread and the tapestry that represents your life will be something that makes much of Jesus. We know that God is a refuge and a strength and a very present help in times of trouble. We know that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. We know that He is always sustaining and working for our good and for His glory. We know that His love endures forever. And His love is not just a being love, a passive love. It is a doing love. And these are the truths, along with many, many more, that we can cling to, that we see in the book of Ruth, and we see throughout the Scriptures, and you see in your own life. And hopefully these truths will help you to press forward considering the grand tapestry that is being woven together that is a representation of God's covenantal faithfulness and His love for you. Let's pray together. Be dismissed.